the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 23. A for Andromeda. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight we are going to be looking at A for Andromeda. Simon, tell me what it's about. A for Andromeda was a BBC science fiction serial ran to seven episodes in the early 60s, 1961, I think. It's largely missing from the archives. There's one full surviving episode, which is episode six, and the final half of episode seven. There's also a few film inserts from some, some of the earlier episodes. It was written by the Astronomer Royal at the time, Sir Fred Hoyle, and he also wrote a, a number of very good science fiction novels. Um, the Black Cloud is about the most famous, but there were others. October the 1st is too late, and A for Andromeda was novelised by him. Can't remember whether his son was involved in the novelization. Some of the work that he did, he wrote with his son, Geoffrey. The plot, I'm not going to say too much about, because as well as the 1960s version, there was a BBC remake following on the heels of the, the Quatermass Experiment remake. So we're going to start off by watching that. And I'm not going to spoil the, the plot for Ken before we do. Hmm. So we'll talk about that afterwards. And then we're going to watch the surviving episodes of the 1960s serial and compare. And at some point, we may get to do the Andromeda Breakthrough, which was the sequel to A for Andromeda back in the 60s. And that does survive in its entirety. But that's about six hours of television. Before we do launch into this, as ever, we need a gin review first. We do. Gin review tonight is Curio Gin, which is... One of my favourite, favourite gins. It is a... Cornish small batch gin with samphire, so it has a salty edge to it. Despite that, it's still nice and smooth, has a good kick to it. I'm quite enjoying it. It's For me, it's um, an above average gin. I know that you rate it very high. I, I rate it a solid five Bernards. I'm going to give it four Bernards. It is definitely above average. It's not... Um, you see, my, my personal preference tends to be towards flavoured gins and gin liqueurs as my absolute favourite go-to gins. This is just a very good gin. I, I know we're drinking it with tonic, but it also makes a lovely martini. Oh, really? Mm. We should post these on the Facebook page, our gin reviews. They get buried sometimes in the podcasts. You should have your own mixer page as well. You're, you're full of advice on, on these things. You're trying to tell me you don't already have an Excel spreadsheet with our gin reviews on. Do you know because what? Because if you say you haven't, I'm not going to believe you. Incredibly. Uh, but it's doing the job as we've uh, been talking. We've just been talking about Doctor Who on a separate podcast recording for Lisa and Andy at Round the Archives. We've just recorded a short segment for their podcast. And I, two times, three times, could not differentiate between the smugglers and the savages. So that's the measure of this gin. It uh, it's not only mixes well with Fever Tree Tonic, it mixes your Doctor Who stories up as well. You're mixing two good ones, though. Very good ones. Without further ado, Ron VT. Enjoy. Oh, John, come and have a look at this. It's a signal, a repeating signal. I think it's coming from the centre of Andromeda. Picked up a message from another planet. I mean, I, mean, I know what the message says. What? We build the computer. Well, what have we got? Uh, well, we've 
processed the signal through the computer and it gave us this. I think it may be the structure of a living cell. Monet really trying to create life. We've given examples of our own DNA and the computer is comparing them. Which means? Thank God. We're building a living body. A body? Your enzyme formula. Is it true you have Andromeda designing smarter ways to kill people? This is a matter of national security. Instead of the enzyme for cell regeneration, it's a virus for cell destruction. Okay, well, then a uh, break from our usual way of doing this. We've watched the A for Andromeda 2006 remake yeah. before we've watched the surviving episode from the 1960s. And the reason we've done that is because we can watch that, you can watch the remake as a complete story whereas the majority of the original is missing we'd be doing a, a big play and catch up and there there are some tele snaps but there aren't a huge number of tele snaps that make a reconstruction possible and there, there also isn't um, surviving audio from the missing episodes which is a pity really because i did enjoy that and i think that i would like to see the way they did it in the 1960s I mean, what it does demonstrate is just how lucky we are as Doctor Who fans to have audios of every oh, we episode. We, and there's not a day goes by when we are on about missing episodes. We've got surviving audio for every episode and telesnaps. There's, so for all the material that's missing, we are very lucky to have a lot of material that survives. A for Andromeda, let's, let's get on to that. Now, again, this is another one that I know nothing about. I'm coming to completely cold. Let's start with the positives for the remake. The... Well, would it be a good idea to do the plot first? God almighty, tell people what it's about. I don't know. Okay, yes, don't, go on. We don't have to if you we, don't want no, to. We, we you can better. do if you don't want we to. Better. It doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> <laughs> this is a criticism we have of ourselves, a little in-joke here, that we, uh, we in our earlier podcast, we launched straight into critique without actually telling the listeners what the hell things were going on. And so, some of the more obscure stuff, um, it's not... Not really surprised that there are listeners we have who... I haven't got a clue what's going on. It's, I say, have, won't have seen certain no. things. And particularly as we're deliberately trying to um, talk about some arguments. more yeah. obscure stuff, then this is a really long-winded way of saying I'm about to tell you what the plot is. Just, yeah. Right, okay. Simon, what's the plot? Right, okay. Spoilers. <laughs> something that is... That's spoilers, old bean. Nearly yes, 60 years old. A for Andromeda is a science fiction story. It is the story... It's set in the modern day, and it's the story of a group of astronomers who detect a signal coming from the Andromeda galaxy. And because it's complex and regular and repeated, then they very quickly come to realise that it's an artificial signal. So it's the first proof of life outside our galaxy. Moreover, as they interpret, as they they work to interpret the signal, it's predominantly uh, uh, the the main character John Fleming, who's a computer genius who interprets it. Realise that it's a blueprint for building a computer, and so and instructions for running that computer. They 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 build the computer, and it very quickly starts hoovering up information like a sponge. In the remake, it bypasses all the firewalls that it, that are in place and sucks all the information out of the internet. It then starts giving biological blueprints in the remake. It's biological blueprints for a person. One of the team who's developing the computer is a computer programmer called Christine, who under the influence of the machine electrocutes herself using the machine. And when the 
biological program is complete and they unveil what it is that uh, has been grown, it's a copy of Christine. And this copy of Christine becomes the interface with the computer. Fleming um, soon comes to realise that this is an invasion by stealth um, and the computer is offering more and more scientifically tempting things, particularly to the military commander who is looking after the, the base now. And so sort of targeted weapons, viruses that will go after particular people or particular racial groups. And the lead scientist, um, uh, Professor Dornay, who's played by Jane, Jane Asher, um, who's a biologist, starts to um, follow the uh, machine's blueprints to build up enzymes and cells and ultimately the replica of Christine that they call Andromeda. Dornay hears overhears a conversation where there's the discussion about weaponizing the output from the machine. And so she starts to have her doubts about the project. Fleming has realized that um, if he puts in the number that represents Andromeda's identity into the computer backwards, it tells the computer that she's dead and the, the computer panics. And he does this and Andromeda is able to, able to calm the machine down. Dorney does this and the machine gives her a, a program for her enzyme which is supposed to be a cellular repair enzyme, what it actually turns out to be is something that destroys tissue. And the last we see of her, she's breathing her last in a hospital bed, along with her entire team, because they've been exposed to this lethal enzyme. Andromeda goes, tries to kill Fleming, and he realises what's happening and stops her. And then very quickly convinces her that um, her human side is more important than her machine side. So between them, they go and destroy the computer, they, they destroy the machine, they destroy the copy of the, the message. Message has now, as, as by this stage, stopped transmitting. And the series ends with Andromeda locking herself in the burning computer room and destroying herself as well. So there's nothing left from the message. It's so, all a bit grim, actually. Now, the, I, I really should have a look online because there was a, a Radio Times article years and years and years ago about science fiction series through the ages. So you had the likes of Doctor Who, Hitchhiker's Guide. In there was a picture, a black and white picture, with a man with sort of antenna representing A for Andromeda. I suspect they got that a little bit wrong. Yes. There's nobody with antenna in A for Andromeda, either the first one or the remake. If you can find the article, I can have a look at the picture. That was many, many years ago. It's got to be 30 years ago, so very unlikely. There you go, a little research project for you. you. You're not busy. I've got nothing, life, nothing at all on... Actually, isn't it the sort of thing you can find on BBC Genome? Have they digitised the whole thing? I, th I think they've digitised all the Radio Times. Well, there you go. I um, did not know that. And I think it's searchable. Yeah, because um, Andy and Lisa always look at Genome for their for the episodes they're doing and talk about what else was on, on that night. They're much more organised than we are. They, they are. We, I mean, we, we are very we, much... We tip up, we put a DVD on, slosh out the gin and then... Enjoy ourselves. Shot. I mean, this is just no. Right. The, the re let's let's talk about the remake. On the plus side, I mean, if, by the opening credits, you can tell there is a cast of very famous people. Yeah. In it. You've got Tom Hardy, David Haig, Jane Asher, who's always a pleasure to watch. And it's really high concept sci-fi, which you don't often see on on TV. You did in the in the sixties because there was there were things like this. There was Out of the Unknown, going through, going through into into Doom Watch. So some big concept stuff. But you don't really see that anymore. I like. I do like the the concept of this thing. I unfortunately, it's a lot of the same criticisms I have with the Quatermass remake. I mean, the Quatermass remake can they did it live and. 
it was very, very much in the style of this. The only trouble is, you've got this wonderful story, and it is a wonderful story. Yeah. It's just done in a very amateur way. And these things were really quite ahead of their time, because 10 years later, well, 13, 14 years later, it's now a very normal thing for for TV series reboots, which is basically what this is. This is, yeah. And this, or the Quatermass series, would work brilliantly as a reboot. Compare that with a very contemporary reboot of of Doctor Who. Mm. Now, that was done on Filmize Video. I'm not expecting that they would throw money at something like this, but... It's all done on handheld camera, which I despise because no matter how gritty and real they are trying to make it look when they do it on handheld camera, it always comes across looking a bit amateur. And it it was over bright. Um, There was an awful lot of white White in the costumes. White costumes, white coats. Yeah, and it just seemed a a deliberate, oh, we'll, we'll get the scientists wearing white because that's what scientists do. I mean, it's filmed in a very high frame rate. You never wear anything white into a lab. Unless you are dealing with chemicals all the time, which they're not. They're faffing about with computers all the time. Why do they need lab coats on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Some of the effects have dated quite badly, even in 14 years. The CGI looks a bit ropey now. The green screen looked very ropey. The model shots look ropey. And I I probably just should say something by way of explanation. I, I make all these grand comments about about science and that doesn't look like any lab I've ever worked in. I, I am a trained scientist. I spent 20 years working in, working in chemistry and have a PhD in the subject. Uh, and chemistry is how I met Andy. I then got bored with that and then did a medical degree. Um, <laughs> so I can, I can comment on the medicine as well. So it's not just me pulling ideas out my backside. I, I do actually know what laboratories look like and work like. Even as somebody who doesn't work in a laboratory, that all looked terribly sterile and it's all those lab coats were straight out of a packet and they'd never been worn before and everything was just a little bit too as you put it a bit too designed well no actually to be fair lab coats tend to be clean because we get no, washed every week yeah i know but there's clean and then there's brand new and brand new always stands out half a mile mm. i mean the, the the handheld camera thing has really hacked me off and it's overly lit and it's just detracted from the whole thing it just looks like a student film all the way through yeah. and the other thing is the character of dornay being there from the beginning so you have a biologist looking after a, um an astronomy base really doesn't make sense. And in the original, there were two separate characters. Dornay doesn't come in until partway through when they realise they're dealing with biological systems. And there's another guy who, uh, whose character name I've forgotten who's in charge of the base. And they basically push those two characters together. And there's another yeah. very major character who's a security woman, which was a, a, a big thing in 1961 to have a woman as their security agent. I'm looking for. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the '60s take on this, yeah. and, and that character is just going to be better. Completely. Um, the one thing that again leapt out was you've got this massive laboratory or this scientific installation with hardly anybody working there, and the whole thing screams of this is underpopulated, and in there will be far more people in there. So you've got these portmanteau characters, but there's no flesh on the bones. There's, you basically got four people, three. Scientists of varying categories, mm. and then the Ministry of Defence. Yeah. And Kaufman is a much bigger character in the um, in the in original, the original. Um, and becomes one of the the major characters in the sequel. But it's other things. I mean, the tiny, tiny little things. But you put them all together, and all of a sudden, you've got this amateur thing. Jane Asher walks in when Tom Hart, you know, um, Doctor Fleming is about to walk out of the facility. Says, "Can I have a drink?" 
She gets a cheap bottle of vodka out of a cheap cupboard and pours it into a cheap tumbler. Now, in the 1960s, without having seen a frame of it, I know damn well that it would have been a glass of whiskey and a crystal decanter on the side on a decent-looking either dresser or cabinet or something, and it would have looked better than that. However you want to dress it up, that was a badly done scene, and just another example of doing it on the cheap. Now, if you're going to remake something, it needs to look good, and that doesn't look good. So... No matter how good the story is, and I really enjoyed that story, it has to be said. The novel is fantastic. The production values are terrible. Yeah. Afrandromeda is something that I was introduced to through Time Screen. I was originally a Doctor Who fan. Really? Yeah. That made him as a show. I'm stunned. I'll need a drink. And like many Doctor Who fans in the 80s, I read fanzines. And I sent off for a fanzine called Time Screen. And it was quite early in their run. I think it was the third issue. And I was absolutely captivated by it because there, there was pretty much nothing Doctor Who in it at all. What there was was all these other shows that I'd, I'd never heard of and just fell in love with the description of. And they're very detailed articles. An awful lot of them were written by Andrew Pixley. Mm. Um, they give detailed episode guides. And the one that I first got was the one where they published what they knew of the BBC archives. So it was basically a list going back to, I don't think they went back as far as the to 1936 RUR, which is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, science fiction on, mm. the, uh, on the BBC. Certainly went back as far as the, the 1950s and the Greater Mass Experiment. And it just showed me the, the range of what there was and brought home the, the absence of the, the yeah. 60s in, uh, stuff in the, in the archives. And from that, I could see that there were, and, and from other articles they did, I could see that there were a certain number of TV shows that you could get to through books. Yeah. So you could get the novelisation of A for Andromeda, you could get the novelisation of the Andromeda Breakthrough, you could get hold of the short stories that the Out of the Unknown episodes were based on. And before any any realistic repeat channels, or and before video, and there's, there's still a load of the um, stuff in the BBC archives that hasn't been released on DVD mm. or any kind of medium now, before any of that, really the only way to get to see things was either go to conventions. And conventions you was where you got to see Doctor Who. Happy days. But you didn't really get to see this sort of stuff. Mm. Or through reading the books. And A for Andromeda is a fantastic book. Now, after that, I went to a, a thing called Past Visions of the Future at the um, British Film Institute at the National Film Theatre. And it was an entire weekend of nothing but classic British science fiction. And I drove up in my ancient little Skoda, which only went about 50 miles an hour. It took me forever to get get up there. And I couldn't afford to stay up there. So I slept in my car <laughs> so that I could get to, get to both days. And it was amazing. I saw an episode of the Andromeda Breakthrough and an episode of Counter-Strike and some Doomwatch and the really distressing... I, I saw the stone tape. And Which you've been trying to get to yeah, yeah. put on the, on the podcast but for I'm a while. But I'm about to name drop because... I, I love the stone tape. I think it's the best thing that Nigel Neal has ever written. And I wrote into Time Screen as a, as a geeky teenage fan, blethering on about how much I, I thought that the stone tape was better than, than Quatermass, but still loved Quatermass. And Nigel Neal replied to that letter and said, I agree with your correspondent that the Stone Tape is, is um, better television than, uh, than the Great Mass Experiment. Do you have that archived anywhere? I've got the original. I've got PDFs. Um, <laughs> I haven't quite wallpapered the, the bedroom with it, but it's not very far off. So I was introduced to all of this 
fantastic British telefantasy quite early on in my fandom, which is why I know quite a lot about it and why I've spent a lot of years collecting it yeah. and have given vast amounts of money to network over the years because they just keep doing these amazing releases. There is and one particular bit of that remake, I don't know whether it's faithful to the uh, original or not, where Dr. Fleming and Christine sleep together behind Geek Boy's back. Bridger. Yeah. While he's off fell walking. And um, she makes every effort the whole way through to seduce Dr. Fleming. Yeah. As soon as they've slept together, the morning after, Geek Boy's found dead at the bottom of a cliff, having sold his secrets to the Americans. All of a sudden, Christine develops a conscience, and it's all Dr. Fleming's fault for betraying his mate. The stunning hypocrisy of that scene. I'll just park that there. Well, grief affects people in, in odd and different ways. Yeah. Conscience pricking a little, darling. Anyway, we will move on. Because I, I am now itching to see this. I think that this is going to be better than the remake. That's my gut feeling. Yeah. So Tell us I, a bit of background about the 60s Ace Andromeda. One final thing I want to say about yeah. the, the remake. The final quote is from Carl Sagan. I have a great deal of time and respect for Carl Sagan. His We Are Star Stuff quote is incredibly inspirational. I have it as a, the geekiest tattoo on the planet because I have I Am Star Stuff, which is the Carl Sagan quote, written in amino acid residues as an armband. I was wondering, you just cleared that one up. Yeah, because amino acids can be represented by individual letters, so you can spell out words. There, unfortunately, isn't a W, so you can't do the proper We Are Star Stuff quote, but you can do I Am Star Stuff. And, and that's what my new armband is. I, know th- I thought the Seal of Rassilon was... Which I... You're the second person I know who's got the Seal of Rassilon as a tattoo. It's yeah. the only one I'd even vaguely consider. And I've got an Omega as well for the Omega Factor. Anyway. Right. Anyway. Can't say. Enough about my body mod. A Andromeda was written by Sir Fred Hoyle, who was the Astronomer Royal at the time. And the reason I find it ironic that Carl Sagan is used as an end quote is because one of the things he's very well known for is the novel Contact, which was made into a film with Jodie Foster. So you've said, yes. Oh, that, that Contact. That right. Contact. You think about that Contact, all the clever stuff in it is A for Andromeda. The message from the stars and interpreting it and everything. Okay, it, um, it has a, a big side plot with a travel machine rather than a, a computer. And there's a big side plot with religious fundamentalism, which this doesn't have. Um, this has a side plots of militarization and corporate espionage, which Contact doesn't have. But all the, the clever, interesting science fiction in Contact, which Carl Sagan is absolutely lauded for, came from A for Andromeda. Mm. So I, I find it slightly teeth grindy that it is, is the end, end quote from that. Anyway, on to the, the 60s, or back to the 60s. What I suggest we do, because the surviving material is filmed inserts from the first few episodes, the entirety of episode six and about the final 50 minutes of episode seven. So I suggest we watch the film inserts. Oh, apparently there's a point of view that has it. That would be, we could watch that as well. So we watch the film, filmed inserts and episode six, record responses to that and then watch the end. And do a final wrap up. Fine. How does that sound? So well, I quite fancy seeing that points of view as well. Let's start with points of view. I've never seen an archive points of view. Neither have I. Robert Robinson. I haven't seen the science fiction serial A for Andromeda because I find it awfully hard to work 
stirring up any enthusiasm for storybook versions of the future. But J.A.K. Fraser of Aspall near Dornock, Scotland, has seen it. Enough, surely, has been seen of Professor Fleming's overacted hysterical outbursts. Suggest redundancy notice be served and monster advised. I'm waiting for an intelligible message from space, and here is one. It is intelligible? Yes. You can decipher it. Oh, for heaven's sake, do you think the cosmos inhabited by a load of Boy Scouts setting Morse code? It is. Is it a message? No, but it's a surviving clip I haven't seen. This is your DVD and you've not seen that clip. No, I, I generally don't bother with special features. Oh, I love special features. They're the best part of DVDs for me. No, I get the DVD to actually watch the thing. So if you go onto the A for Andromeda thing, I think there are options of ways to watch it. So this is surviving material from episode two. And, and that's there's Christine. Julie Christie. And this was her first major role. See, I'm much preferring the look of this already without a single line being delivered. Oh, I'd forgotten he played Bridger. He's in wonderful condition. Oh, hello. On London High Street, he's dressed like that. Yeah, subtly. Something out of a Wham video. And that's the security woman. It's more Pet Shop Boys than Wham. What the hell's going on there? John Hollis, Professor Sondergaard in Newton's. Oh, what's his name? Him there, what's his name? Not the bald one. It, I can't remember, he's Scottish, isn't he? Or he, he's known for playing somebody Scottish. Mm. So in this version, he's not selling out to the Americans, he's no, selling he, out to the Germans. No, he's selling out to a corporate multinational. This is far more sinister. The quality's very good. Again, they're filmed into it, I suppose. I'm not going on play. Frank Windsor. That is Frank Windsor. And still alive, he's 92. Ah, who alumni? Ghostlight, he was in. He's got a very chiselled face, even in those days. And was Ranulph in Doctor Who. Inspector McKenzie. Oh, he was, uh, he was in The King's Demons as well. Yeah, just Sir Ranulph. Another surviving clip from episode two. Oh, that's a bit... Uh... Hmm... Discover the body in the boot of a car. And that's Bridger. Ian Halliday given a decent role. Rather As opposed than... to Packer! <laughs> Packer! I take it these are scenes of them building the supercomputer. Yeah. Why is the YMS fencing moving with the speedboat? Oh, the chauffeur's a sniper as well. There's more surviving material than I remember. And it's good stuff. There must have been a fair old amount of money spent on this, comparatively. Well, you got sci-fi written by the Astronomer Royal, and it was the first big sci-fi thing after Quatermass in the Pit, because it was only three years later. And there's a story, I don't know how true it is, that it was never made available for overseas sale. Quite a long helicopter landing. Here we go, this is the surviving one. For whatever reason, the clips of Reinhardt giving a, a recap of the episode. Reinhardt is the, um, the boss of the establishment. So he's one of the two characters that was added together to produce Dormy. He basically gave an episode recap at the beginning of each episode in the form of a, a, a sort of subsequent a, a retrospective interview. And those clips don't survive. 
we've just watched all the surviving material from the 60s version of April and Drummond in 1961, you said. Yes. And I have to say, I enjoyed that a lot better than the remake. I just thought it was uh, a better populated, better acted, better produced serial. It felt like, to be quite honest, it felt like a completely different story. There were basic elements there that have been remade, but it was just done in a better way. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a seven-episode serial rather than a 90-minute single story. Yeah. So there were big chunks of the plot that the feature length had to cut out. That said... Had, that said, I I prefer watching that to watching the, the remake. The advantage of the remake and the reason it went for it first is because it's a complete story. Mm. Whereas had you just watched that episode and a half on its own... It's out of context. It would still be enjoyable, but yeah, out of context. We'd have to do a lot of explanation of what the plot is beforehand and after. I'm trying to screw down really why I like that better. It is better filmed. Proper static cameras moving, focusing, pulling on the actual actors. It's not done stylistically. It's done to tell a story. And they've got an excellent cast. Um, okay, it, It's a broader cast than the, the 90 Minute. Characters like Quadring, Reinhardt, pretty much all of the political characters just don't appear in the remake. No, but and as a result of that, this feels better because you've got a broader cast yeah. of minor characters that just flesh it out. Whereas the other one was effectively a forehander. Yeah, and it doesn't really work. The ending is completely different. The ending, the, the final quarter of an hour of episode seven survives, which is the finale. It ends up being a chase sequence rather than Andromeda's suicide. Andromeda... Does she escape or does she die? Who knows? Does she drown in a cave or does she escape? I'm assuming she survives because there's yeah, a sequel. she survives because there's a sequel. Um, but the original intention was for her to to have drowned and for that to be the end of it. And because it was so popular, they, they came up with the sequel. I, I think there's a bit more to it than that in the ending, in that the remake, it's very definitely a decision on the, bit, on the part of Andromeda to put herself in that burning room yeah. and suicide to make sure that nothing can can come of it i don't actually with, mind the ending of the remake i yeah, think as a yeah, as a okay. definite ending yeah absolutely a... with the original the machine gets destroyed and that's the point where we we pick up the finale because she's saying now the machine's gone i can think mm. for myself and she decides to focus on her her human part without the controlling influence of the machine mm. so that's why she helps fleming that's why she goes back into the um computer complex and destroys all the the program and the notes and everything, so it can't be rebuilt. Not realising that Bridger has already sold all the information to Kaufman, which means that there are other com- other machines and other computers that have been built, hence the, um, the sequel. Mm. But she, at the end of this, is trying to escape and fails, rather than deliberately trying to kill herself. The interplay between the characters, uh, Peter Halliday makes a much better Dr. Fleming than Tom Hardy. I, I like Tom Hardy. I like what he's been in and I like him as an actor. Peter Halliday does that better. Yeah, I agree. And I think Mary Morris is an excellent actress. Um, she really comes into her own in the sequel. But she plays a, a, a great Dornay. Um, it's not to say I don't think Jane Asher does a, a good job, but I yeah. think Mary Morris really owns better. the part yeah. better. Um, um, but as I was mentioning before, the drink scene... Even though it is a very simple scene in the 60s version, it's done so much better than the remake. Yes, Just, and, and it's a meeting of colleagues mm. rather than 
tension and uh, Dornay trying to tell Fleming what to do. That was just better, yeah. And and that's really a consequence of the fact that in the original, Dornay is a separate character to their boss Mm. because you've got Gears there who is the, the one that is lording it over them and Dornay is the one that is becoming sympathetic and is the dedicated scientist. With the Jane Asher version of Dornay, she's having to play both roles and the character kind of gets pulled in two directions and, uh, and it sort of appease her bosses and so be the boss, but at the same time be the sympathetic scientist. That doesn't really quite work. As I say, I'm not a, I'm not a great fan of portmanteau characters. The, the only time I've ever thought that it worked okay was an adventure in space and time where they merge characters like uh, Mervyn Hayesman and Henry Lincoln and they were rolled into one character. But with something like this, there's such distinct characters, you need that breadth of of a cast in order to make it feel populated. The remake just felt like four people in a complex wandering about. They they were just isolated on their own. It wasn't part of a... And there were political aspects to this, because there was the the Prime Minister and all of his aides doing things. Do you mean that the RP accent and the moustache and the pipe... And the desk. And the desk. They are all indicators of position of power. You mean to say that that chap there was the Prime Minister? Well, goodness gracious me, he certainly looks apart. Indeed he does, Mr Chumley Warner. <laughs> yeah, there are certain uh, character attributes from this sort of era that denote a figure of authority. And yes. The moustache and the pipe do seem to be one of them. And being a bloke. Yes. Although, again, having said that, there's this, this great push for, you know, we must reverse the trend of weak female characters and everything we seem to watch has got some really good, strong female characters. And when we come on to the sequel of this, Kaufman's boss, who becomes the the chief antagonist, um, is, is a woman. Well, you say that Mary Morris gets, she's really comes into her own in the sequel. I wouldn't argue with her in this. In fact, I don't think, I think she's just got one of those faces you wouldn't argue with in any case. Yeah, and there were quite a few, subject uh, Mary Morris, there, a fair number of Who alumni. Yes, there she were. she was kinder. Uh, Peter Halliday appeared in... The Invasion. It was Packer. <laughs> um, he was in Remembrance of the Daleks as the priest that inters the Hand of Omega. But he also did Alien Voices and Silurians, and he was Pletrak in Carnival of Monsters. And the Renaissance-era guard in City of Death. He was. The one with the cold hands for torturing. I feel sure that we've missed something there, because he, he worked with a few doctors. That might be... Um, there was something. There was some voice work in Ambassadors of Death as well. Was it there the was, Alien Voices? Yeah. He was, yeah. Jack yeah. May from... Oh, Jack um, May from Space Pirates. Yes. Looking very, very young. I don't know what happened in the intervening years, but he aged tremendously in a very short time then, because I didn't even recognise that as Jack May. I'd imagine that was obviously a very traumatic experience for him. That's another one to come on to. Oh, it's great. You you will really enjoy Adam Adamant. I do, in the midst of time, I do vaguely remember seeing it. But if you've seen the pilot, then Jack May's character doesn't appear into the second episode. So you you won't have seen the limerick-spouting butler. (laughs) But bottom line, I've said it many, many times before, just because something's old doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Kind of preaching to the choir on that one. Yeah. However, this uh, prime example that longer storytelling, bigger cast of minor characters, 
reliant on story and dialogue rather than special effects and fancy camera work. Yeah, um, I agree completely. I mean, if this existed in all seven episodes, the remake wouldn't have been done. But if it was a choice between this, watching this and watching the, the remake, I would watch this. Mm. So there you are, boys and girls. Very, very well recommended. It is. Um, it's not a series I've ever... I knew about it. I've never experienced it before. I'm glad I have. I think it's a, a really good, interesting little story. Yeah. Another and, one to be recommended. And discussing the the lack of episodes in the archive brings us on to the Black Archive. It does indeed. Now, it's tempting to say we'll have a, a for Andromeda in this episode's Black Archive, but that's a bit of a cheat. You can have A for Andromeda if you want. No, I've got a better idea. I'll let you go first this time. My suggestion for the Black Archive this time around is R3. It's a BBC science fiction series from the mid-60s. Ran for two series, featured Oliver Reed in his first starring role, and was a sort of proto-doomwatch. It followed the exploits of Research Lab R3. Not a single episode survives. Um, not a single clip survives. The only surviving footage is one single trailer that doesn't feature any of the main cast. It's reasonably obscure then. As far as I'm aware, it's the only BBC science fiction series, as opposed to serial, that has no surviving episodes. Mine is going to be a little more mainstream, and this is more for the benefit of other people than myself. There are now scant few episodes of Dad's Army that are missing. Now, that is one of those, uh, as we've... Ex- two, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's two from series two. It's one of those series, as we've looked at in the past, you can pick any episode and watch it and just be happy. You don't need to watch them in order, you don't need to have seen anything before, and it's repeated ad infinitum. It seems a terrible shame that there are any gaps in that series. So for that reason alone, I would plug those gaps. And it's a really good show. It is. And yeah. I know we've already done an episode of it. Well, I'd quite like to come on and do other episodes of it because I've got a real soft spot for Dad's Army. I mean, really, that could be sort of like fed into the randomizer and just any episode you like. It doesn't matter what it is, I'll watch that. No, we'd have to go to Archivist to get the randomizer. We'll get it back out of the tachyon booth. Out of the green clutches of Inspector Green. Your cock up, my ass. That's another one for another time. The Thin Blue Line from the 90s. I love The Thin Blue Line. What an underrated series that is. And The High Life. Never watched it with right. um, Siobhan Redman and... Um, Alan Cumming. Alan Cumming. Yeah, we will watch that. The, the Batman episode is absolutely hilarious. Having never seen a one, I even I do know what the theme tune is. Because that, that's another earworm, I'm afraid. At the time, it was very... That was quite a popular one at the time, wasn't it? The High Life. I seem to remember a lot of people talking about that, that I was around. I know a lot of people who like The High Life a lot, but that's because I mithered all my housemates with it <laughs> and have done since. And actually, the Eurovision episode we watch quite a lot when it's coming up to Eurovision. Yeah, Eurovision and me don't get on. Oh, you're just a heathen. Well, I'm not a gay man. It, it helps, I believe. Mm. Every gay man that I know loves Eurovision. I, I know some that don't. Not many. You probably know more gay men than I do. You're more involved in who fandom than I am. Mm, yeah, but they're not mates. They're people I... They're acquaintances. And the mates I knock about with, with a very tenuous who connection, 
are all married and when we get together to go to conventions and things, it's really just an excuse to go on the piss. We tight it up under the veil of Doctor Who conventions, but it's really just a, a weekend away. However, however. Um, it's quite a while since I've been to a convention. I have said that this year um, I, I probably wouldn't mind doing I've not been for a couple of years. and uh, I'm, I'm doing Worldcon this year. Where's that? Dublin. It's not specifically Doctor Who. It's uh, the World Science Fiction Convention. It's been the third one, fourth one I've been to. Because I went to Brighton back in the late 80s, I think. Glasgow in the late 90s. London four or five years ago. And was going to go to Helsinki, but didn't actually manage to get there. And yeah, there's a group of us from Birmingham. We're going to go and... We've been spoiled in the past with Who conventions because all of the, all of the big names now are dropping off rapidly. Really? Yeah. We'll look at Doctor Who and the Daleks too. There's a lot missing from that now. That either A, don't do the circuit anymore. Right, okay. Or B, have just passed on. Nicholas Courtney went to that. Liz Sladen. I haven't seen Louise Jameson at once into that. Oh, Louise Jameson's really busy. She does loads of stuff. Oh, she does. And, and she tours. William Russell. He's getting on a bit now. He's well into his 90s now. Yeah, the last thing I did, well, John Moffat was working up up until he was 100 or so. And he was predominantly a voice actor. Mm. Oh, he was Poirot. He was the Radio Poirot and does an extremely good job of it. Yes, um, he does. Uh, uh, and in parallel with June Whitfield's... As um, Miss Marple. Miss Marple. Have we segued far enough? We're almost looping back on ourselves. Should we wrap this up? We should wrap this up, yes. Boys and girls... It's been an absolute pleasure for us. We hope that you have enjoyed it at least half as much as we have. And hopefully we've given you a, a little bit of a, a taster of Afro Andromeda. It's well worth seeing. If you have any interest in classic TV science fiction, it really deserves the title classic. And the, the sequel is very good as well. One for another time. One for another time. We should it's be back six in... Six hour long episodes, so we might have to split that one up. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next edition. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.